It's good to see all of you here this morning. If you're a guest with us this morning, thank you so much uh, for being with us. We really are happy and excited that you're here. And I've got just three things that we want you to experience while you're here. I hope for you, threefold. Number one, that you enjoy today, you enjoy the experience, the service. That Number two, that you feel welcome here, that you could find yourself maybe being a part of this community. We love people. We love you. Number three is the most important, that uh, you would just get a sense of the love and presence of Jesus that's in this place. We believe that Jesus was not just a historical figure, that he lived, he died, he was raised again, and he's in heaven, and he's a real person, and he longs to have an encounter with each and every person. Because when you meet him, you'll never be the same. So thank you so much for being with us. Well, it's 2015. We made it to a new year. And how many of you can successfully say that you've kept your resolutions for the first four days? Nobody. If you're like me, you're just waiting until tomorrow to start, right? Because it's the first Monday of the new year. You know, you always start diets on Monday, and then you end them on Friday, and then you restart them again on Monday. But uh, I, I, I love resolutions. I, I make them every year, which I think we all do. And I love to remake the same ones the next year, hoping, just hoping that I'll actually accomplish them. But they do give us an opportunity uh, to really focus, to really think about what we want to do, what we want to accomplish, how we want to live our lives. I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of resolutions. In fact, the church, you know, we have resolutions of our own, and every year we begin uh, with 21 days of prayer and fasting, a way for us to look at the new year. God, what are you speaking to us? What do you want us to do? And I just want to take a short opportunity. I know we saw it in video announcements, but just to talk to you for a moment. You know, in the book of Joel, chapter 1, verses 14, he makes this statement. He says, announce a time of fasting. Call the people together for a solemn meeting. Bring the leaders and all the people of the land and the temple of the Lord your God and cry out to him there. Now, in the book of Joel, when he made this statement, there was some crazy stuff going on at that time. And they were coming together for a very specific purpose. You know, yes, the world is going crazy, but our situations aren't so much the same. But I think the principle applies. I think it's such a great opportunity when we can come together in unity around the same thing. And not just what we think and what we believe, but with what God says and what he believes. And so why do we fast? I, I think that, that the moment we hear the word fast, we get hungry, right? We get hungry and then we have an aversion to hearing that word because we don't want to be hungry. We want to be full. And here's what I believe about fasting. Fasting is not just an opportunity to not eat. Uh, fasting is not just a good excuse to lose weight. Fasting does not take God's arm, twist it behind his back, and make him do for us whatever we want him to do, right? It's not like the ultimate negotiating trip, uh, trick that we can do. You know what I mean? It's like, well, I really need God to do this, therefore I'm going on a fast. I'm not going to eat for 70 days. I mean, we get crazy. But fasting is far more for you and me than it is for God. Fasting is just an opportunity to take something that's meaningful and important to ourselves, set it aside in order to really focus on God. It aligns us, it positions us to really hear from Him. Again, it's not making God do anything. It's, it's for our purpose. And we do 21 days of prayer and fasting, and we're going to do it again this year. Uh, we have something very specific, though, that we're fasting for. The theme for 2015 uh, for this church and for our city is, is the word freedom. And we're going to talk more about that next week. I encourage you to come next week because that's going to be the whole service as we talk about the theme of freedom. But we're believing for four things for our church, and we've already talked about them. And you may be sick of hearing about them, but you'll always hear them. We're believing for the salvation, the, the deliverance, the redemption, and the fulfillment of our city. I'm just crazy enough to think I want to see every single person in our city come to know who Jesus is. 
You know what I mean? And then on beyond that, our country and our world. And I want to see every person experience the freedom or the deliverance that's found in that from whatever that people are experiencing in their lives, whether it be drug addiction or alcohol addiction or, or some sort of sexual addiction or just financial woes or worry or anxiety or whatever the case may be. There is ultimate freedom in Jesus. And then I want to see every person experience the redemption that's found in that in that they find out the reason for which they were created. We all have unique gifts and talents that God has put in us, and we really need to know what do we do with that. And how many of you have ever thought to yourself, I don't know that I'm good at anything, but God has put something in you. And then for every person to experience the fulfillment of a life lived in relationship with God, we begin to do the things that he gifted us to do. And we're going to do something a little bit different this year than we've done before. I'm going to ask you to prayerfully consider two things, okay? It's this. Number one, we're going to open up the church for those 21 days. It begins on January 11th and goes through the 31st. We're going to open up the church Monday through Friday because we're here on Sundays already. And we'll be open on Saturday too. But Monday through Friday from 6 in the morning to 6 in the evening, we're going to have this open. And I want you to prayerfully consider coming and, and spending some time in prayer at the church. And I'm even going to give you an easy way to do that. I'm, asking for, I'm not asking you to come every day but just to come and spend 20 minutes in prayer. And here's how we're going to do it. We have four sections of chairs uh, in this sanctuary. And if you didn't know that, that just means you sat in the same section for far too long. (laughs) Four sections of chairs. And we're going to divide those into the four things that we're praying for. This is going to be salvation, deliverance, redemption, and fulfillment. And I want you to spend five minutes in each section praying for the salvation of our city and for one person that you know. And then move to the next section. Spend five minutes praying for the freedom for someone that you know and for our city. Move to the next section. Pray five minutes for people, a person that you know, to really experience their redemption. It's found in God and the reason for they were created for that person and then our city. And then I want you to move to the final one, fulfillment, and pray for five minutes that people, someone you know, would have experienced true fulfillment and our city. What easier way is there to spend 20 minutes in prayer? You know, you tell somebody you need to pray 30 minutes a day and they're like, holy cow, how do I do that? I just believe that if you have a a plan, it's a little easier. So prayerfully consider two things. Number one, what would God have you, what what do you think you should fast? It it may be food, it may not be. For me, I'm setting aside coffee. And you've heard me talk about coffee a lot. And thank you to everyone who gave me a Starbucks gift card for Christmas. I really do appreciate it. And I still have a balance left in my account. But I'm going to set it aside. And uh, I spend spend too much time, you know, uh, and money on coffee. I'm going to set it aside for those days. That's what I'm doing. For you, it could be different. It could be the news. It could be social media. How many of you spend a little too much time on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, or whatever the case may be? Or it could be just whatever the case may be for those 21 days, set that aside. Just think about it. Pray about it. Second thing is, think about, pray about what is a a day or a time of the day that you could come and just spend some time in prayer. I believe this. I don't... I don't know if things are going to automatically change. I'm not saying that, you know, at the end of January, we're going, to, we're going to pack this place out. That'd be awesome if we did. But I do believe that it's going to bring us closer together as a community and in unity. Because when we unify ourselves around God and his plan, great thing happen. When we come together and try to accomplish our own plan apart from other people, that's called confusion, right? And if the world ever needed unity, they need unity today. And I want to see the, see the world experience the unity that comes from a community of people who believe in Jesus to come together and say, it's not about us, it's about Jesus. And it's about meeting the needs of the people. So that's what we're going to do. Yeah, you can clap. That's something to celebrate. So I want you to consider that. 
And then on Saturdays, we have prayer every Saturday here already from 9 to 10. And if you'd love to come and just pray, we'd, we'd love to have you. But, um, so that's Monday through Friday, 6 to 6. Saturdays will be open 9 to 10. And Sundays, we're already here. So um, that'll begin next week. So thank you so much for listening to my spiel uh, about that. I'm just really excited about it. And I don't want fasting and prayer to be something like, oh, that's what we got to do. No, it's got a purpose. And I'm excited. And it's about freedom. So... That's that. If you'll go with me uh, to Luke chapter 7, we're going to be reading from verses 11 through 17. So if you have your Bibles, your tablets, your phones, whatever the case may be, join me uh, in going there. And uh, we are still in our series entitled Encounters with Jesus. I had originally planned just to do it through the end of the year, but um, I don't know about you. I've just been having a lot of fun and really been enjoying speaking um, through this series and looking at the stories of Jesus. It's just, it's been very, very enlightening and enriching to me. And what we've been doing, if it's your first time here, is we've just been taking a look um, at the life of Jesus and the people that he met along the way. He was on this earth for 33 years, and he encountered quite a few people. And the Gospels have preserved for us some of those stories. And in each story that we've looked at, the person that Jesus encountered, they had some sort of need, whether it be physical or psychological or emotional. And in every case, we've seen that Jesus has not only met the need, he's done more for them than what they came asking for. And in every case, they've walked away far more aware of who Jesus was and what the problem they had when they came to him. And that's our heart, is that every person would have a true encounter with Jesus. Because when you meet him, (coughs) you'll never be the same. So go with me to uh, Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. It says, Soon afterward, Jesus went with the disciples to the village of Nain, and a large crowd followed him. A funeral procession was coming out as he approached the village gate. The young man who had died was a widow's only son, and a large crowd from the village was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry, he said. Then he walked over to the coffin and touched it, and the bearers stopped, the pallbearers. Young man, he said, I tell you, get up. The dead boy sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Great fear swept the crowd, and they praised God, saying, A mighty prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people today. And the news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for just the opportunity to be here. And we thank you first and foremost for Jesus. And we just ask you, Holy Spirit, to help us to encounter him today in a way that we've not yet encountered him. May he be real and practical in the situations in which we face. And God, help me to speak this message as always quickly, effectively, and clearly. And everybody said, Amen. How many of you have ever been um, at a party or hosted a party and somebody who was not on the guest list or did not RSVP and that you didn't know showed up? Have you ever had an unexpected guest or uninvited guest show up at your house or to a party that you planned? Anybody? Nobody. Well, you all need to throw some more parties. <laughs> there are those times when people show up that you don't know and you didn't expect and it can be kind of awkward, Right? They kind of change the mood and the atmosphere of what's going on. And they just show up and you're like, who, who is that? Maybe it's your son or daughter's boyfriend or girlfriend who you know but you just don't like. And uh, they came anyway. And you ask them not to bring them. Or whatever the case may be, when an uninvited, unexpected guest shows up, it's, it's a pretty interesting phenomenon. But there's also those times when someone uninvited or unexpected shows up and it turns out really good. Like you've met a new friend and you say to yourself, although I didn't expect them to come or I didn't know them, I, I, I like them and I could see myself wanting to spend more time with them. 
You know, the reason why I even say that is because in this story, Jesus is the unexpected, uninvited guest. And it's not to a party, it's to a funeral. Even weirder, right? How, how awkward is it when someone shows up to a funeral that you don't know or did not expect? Um, makes the situation even more tense and crazy than what it already is. In this story, that's what, that's what happens. Jesus encounters a funeral procession. Now, the story that's preceding this in the book of Luke that comes before, it, it is a direct correlation, and they happen within the same time period. It's not like one month Jesus was here and the next month he was over here. The Bible says soon afterward, and a lot of theologians and historians believe it was maybe within a couple hours or uh, within you know, a short period of time, probably the same day. The preceding story is a story that a lot of us are familiar with. It's when Jesus has an encounter with a Roman military officer. Now, he doesn't necessarily meet him in, in the physical form, but this Roman military officer, he has a slave, and this guy's very compassionate, and the slave is sick and, and, and getting close to, to death, and, and he sends forth a message to Jesus saying, I have this individual in my household, and they are in need of your services. And so Jesus is on his way to the house of that Roman military officer, and this officer sends forth messengers and says, there's no need for you to come to my house. Number one, I'm not worthy of that honor. Number two, I understand authority. And I understand that all you have to do, Jesus, is speak the word and it'll be done. And this is the time when Jesus says, it's amazing. I've not seen such great faith in all of Israel. Jesus was almost taken back. I've not seen anybody express such great faith. And then... Uh, and obviously the, the slave of the Roman military officer was, was taken care of. And this man wasn't even Jewish. He was Roman. It was a crazy situation. And so it's directly and immediately following this, uh, that, that Jesus encounters this. And Jesus is on his way to the next town. It's a village called Nain. And it's not a big village. It's a small village. And he comes up upon a funeral procession. He has a crowd of people following him. And as we've talked about over the past few weeks, everywhere Jesus went, there was a crowd. He was somewhat of a local celebrity. There's people who liked him and people who didn't like him. And they were following him just to see what he did. Jesus has a crowd of people following him because they've seen him do amazing things and they're excited and they're rejoicing and they are expecting him to do something else. Then there's a crowd of people that they're encountering. This crowd of people is not excited. They're not rejoicing. They're, they're not in expectation of Jesus doing something. In fact, they don't even know who Jesus is, Right? I mean, we read this and we, we know that Jesus is God. They, they didn't know this. They are mourning the loss of a young man. And the funeral processions in those days, we understand that they were very public, uh, they were very emotional, and they were very um, loud, so to speak. People openly mourned. In fact, they would invite or hire professional mourners, people to weep and wail. And, and I, I saw this uh, last year when I was in Haiti up in the mountains, a funeral procession, a you know, basically an archaic board that a body that was wrapped in linen or cloth was put upon and they were carrying it uh, down to wherever they were going to bury the body and there was a procession of people, a pretty surreal experience. And this is what Jesus comes up upon. Now, he comes up on this and Luke tells us the information that Jesus either knew or someone told him. We don't know, but he automatically was aware that this wasn't just a funeral. This was a funeral for a widow who lost her son. And not just her son, but her only son, which the implications of that are huge. It's bad enough to lose a child. I never have, and I hope to never do. But to not only you lose your child, but you lose your only source of income and protection 
and provision. In those days, women didn't work. They didn't provide for themselves. They were dependent on their husbands, on their sons, or upon other male family members. And this woman had lost everything. Lost her son, lost her husband, lost her only son. Now compound that with the fact that she is facing a life of poverty and destitution, maybe begging, doing whatever she can just to make it by. This woman, has, the burden on her is, I can only imagine how great it is. And this is what Jesus comes up upon. This is what he encounters at the city gate. Again, nobody knows who he is. Nobody is waiting for him to do anything except for the people that are behind him. The Bible says that Jesus sees the woman. He's moved with compassion. And then he walks up to her and he tells her this. He says, don't cry. Or as someone informed me, one of the, another translation says, you can stop crying now. I don't know about you, but that's like one of the most insensitive things I think you could ever say to a mother who has just lost her child, or anybody who has lost anyone. I mean, I've not done a lot of funerals. The first one I ever did was for a young man. I believe he was 19 or 20. And you know, the last thing that I thought about saying when I walked in the funeral home and saw his mother was, don't cry. How many of you would want to hear when you lose somebody, don't cry, or you can stop crying now? And Jesus wasn't saying it like, you know, ma'am, I I don't really know what to say, so don't cry. Like, we we all have you know, awkward things that just come out of our mouth and we don't know what to say, right? Here's a piece of advice, and I've had to learn this the hard way. When you don't know what to say, just don't say anything at all because there's nothing that you're going to say that's going to be good. You know what I mean? A pastor friend of mine told me, Josh, never underestimate the power of your presence and the power of your silence. It's good stuff. So that's what Jesus' first words to her. There's no introduction. There's no, hello, I am Jesus, the Son of God, and I'm here to take care of business. No, don't cry. And it's a command, don't cry. I don't think he said it mean. I don't think he said it, you know, insensitively. But nonetheless, his first words to this woman are, don't cry. Awkward. Weird. And everybody around him, I'm sure, that heard that was thinking, weird. Insensitive, you know. It doesn't just stop there. His encounter with this woman who is unnamed, as is the son, are unnamed. They have no, apparently no cultural or social significance. They're important to God, but... Only people with names in the Bible are people that carried some sort of significance. He then leaves the mother. Now, this is, this is a funeral procession. This is in play, like, right? They're walking. And he walks over to the young man. And the young man is probably anywhere from 15 to in his 30s. They use that term for a man who is not yet married. So he's not a little boy, but he's around that age. And he walks over to him, and he, the Bible says that he touches the coffin. What we need to understand is they they didn't use coffins like we use coffins. They weren't ornate, beautiful, closed. No, they were just kind of like I saw in Haiti. It was some board, and the men would carry it either at their side or on their shoulders, a body wrapped in cloth to be laid upon it. So what Jesus really did is he touched a dead body. Now, again, we read it and we think, well, yeah, it's great because he raises them from the dead. But here's what we need to understand. Think about this. Imagine you're in a funeral procession that's left... Chapel Hill, and it's on its way to a cemetery. This would be the equivalent of somebody you don't know coming and stopping the hearse, opening the back door, pulling the coffin out of there, opening it up, and putting their hands on the body. It's much different than at the wake, someone that you know, walking up, paying their respects, putting their hand on the shoulder or the, or the hand of the person in the casket. I mean, this is, this is what's going on. This is what's unfolding before these people. Jesus stops a funeral procession dead in its tracks. People weeping and mourning and grieving. Tells the mother, don't cry. And now he's touching her son. 
That's bad in and of itself. But here's what you have to understand. The moment that Jesus touches a dead body is the moment that, he, that people probably went undone because he broke the law. He broke God's law. Because the law that God instituted in the Old Testament said you're not to touch any dead thing because anything that's dead is unclean. It would make you what they called ceremonially unclean. You would be unable to participate. Do you remember the woman at the issue of blood? She was unclean, couldn't participate socially. Not only that, this is the same thing. Jesus willingly and knowingly touches a dead body, and the law said that he would be unclean. He's broken cultural norms, he's broken social norms, and now he's breaking religious norms. He is not making many friends at this stage in the game. I like the Bible because Paul, Luke tells us, and the pallbearers stopped. So again, it's in procession. Why did they stop? Probably because they're thinking, what in the world is this guy going to do? Puts his hand on him, and then he talks to the young man. He says, young man, I tell you, get up. And this other thing that's cool about the Bible, because the Bible says the dead boy sat up, almost as if, did you forget he was dead? I think it extends farther than that, but the, just, just to let you know, this, this boy was really dead. He sat up and began to talk. Now, I would love to know what he said. I don't know. But I love what Jesus does next. Jesus takes the young boy, and the Bible says that, and he, Jesus gave him back to his mother. It's a beautiful picture. He gives the boy back to his mother. And we don't know what the mother said or what the reunion looked like. The Bible doesn't tell us. It just kind of leaves it up to the imagination. Those are the things I want to know. Then it says, the crowd... Or great fear swept the crowd. At the beginning of the story, we had two crowds, right? We had the crowd that was rejoicing, and then we have the crowd who was mourning, weeping, you know, not aware of anything else but the funeral procession in front of them, and the crowd that, that crowd that was probably aghast at Jesus telling the mother to not cry, and then really crazy uh, when he touched the dead body. Now we just have one crowd, right? They're all, in awe. They're all in awe. The crowd that was like, I can't believe you just touched that body is like, I can't believe he touched that body and this happened. And they're all in wonder of who God is. And they make the statement. They say, um, praise God, saying, a mighty prophet has risen among us today. And God has visited his people. Now, when they call Jesus a prophet, some people think, well, I mean, he's much more than a prophet, right? How many times have you heard Jesus was not just a prophet? He was the son of God. And, and you're right. These people didn't know that. They didn't know that Jesus was the son of God. But here's what their history told them. These were Jewish people. And they knew their history very well. Their history told them there were two great prophets that came before Jesus, one by the name of Elijah and one by the name of Elisha. And they too went to a widow's house and raised a widow's son from the dead. And commentators and theologians, this is what I found in my research, I did not verify it because I don't know how, i just taken their word for it, said that this is the same geographic location where Elijah and Elisha did their miracles. So when they say a great prophet has risen among us, what they're saying is that's the highest title that they have, and that's the only thing in their mind that they know to attribute to this man who just raised a dead man back to life. A great prophet has risen among us, and they say God has visited his people today. Pretty awesome. And then the news of Jesus surrounded the city, and everything was great. And the band can come back. You think to yourself, is that it? Well, that's the end of the story. It's a beautiful story. It really is. A dead young man is now back with his mother. But the question that I have, and as I read this this week in preparing, the question that kind of just was coming up over and over again is, why did Jesus do it? You may say, well, that's an insensitive question. Why wouldn't he do it? 
No, 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 no. Why, why did he heal this young man? Why did he raise him back from the dead? Why did he do it? The preceding story, I said there was a correlation. The preceding story, Jesus is responding to great faith. The faith of the Roman military officer. He's made aware of a need by somebody and is on his way. The other stories that we've talked about, the woman with the issue of blood, she, she makes her way, fights her way to get to Jesus and grabs a hold of his garment. And he says, woman, your faith has made you well. The paralytic, he has four friends who rip the roof off of the building and drop them down in the front of Jesus. And Jesus looks up and sees their faith. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and He's exercising faith and telling Jesus his need, and Jesus is responding to that. The woman at the well, although she wasn't looking for Jesus, Jesus encountered her, and we see by her language quickly changes. And by the end of the story, she says, I need you to come meet a man who told me everything I've ever found about myself. We see Jesus responding to faith. In this story, I don't see anything... That leads me to believe that anybody exercised one ounce of faith towards Jesus. Jesus didn't know these people. He was not from this village. He did not know the woman. He did not know the son. There is no indication anywhere in this story that anybody ever approached Jesus and said, Jesus, you need to do something about this. We know the mother doesn't. She doesn't know Jesus. She's not even aware of who Jesus is, number one, and she's not even aware that he's there because you can only imagine what's on her mind and her heart. The people in the crowd, there's nobody in the crowd that came up to Jesus and said, hey, look, Jesus, this is what you really need to do. I mean, she's, she's a widow. She's lost her only son. She's destitute. You, you need to do this. Not in there. Nobody from the crowd that was behind Jesus told him to do anything. So why did he do it? The, these verses only give us one reason, one reason why Jesus did this. The Bible says this, verse 13. It says, when the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. When the Lord saw her. I love that Luke uses the word Lord. He could have said Jesus, but he says Lord. Although the people don't know who he is, the woman doesn't know who he is, nobody really knows who he is at this point. This is before he would go to the cross and do what he did. The writer is letting us know this was the Son of God. This was Jesus. And when it says that he was moved with compassion for her, or his heart overflowed with compassion, that's a phrase in the English language. But in the original language, it's one big word. It's just one word. It's a long word. It sounds goofy, but it's one word. Some translations say he had compassion on her. You see it repeated at various times in the New Testament, always with Jesus, pretty much. And it's this word that means this. It literally means to be moved is to one's bowels. You see, they believed in that time, in that culture, that the seat of all human emotion was with the internal organs, deep into their bowels. So that's what the word means, to be moved as to one's bowels. That's pretty deep, right? And it wasn't when he looked at her, he didn't have like this warm sensation in his heart that said, oh, she lost her son. It wasn't some just emotion that he felt like, oh man, I just got pity on her. I got I to do something. It, it surpassed sympathy. It surpassed empathy. It was this feeling, this intense whatever that came from the most innermost part of his being, the deepest part of who he was. He felt it so strong. Some people believe that Jesus may have literally kind of... Mm, when he felt it. And you see other parts of the New Testament that say the same phrase, and it's always followed up by Jesus meeting some need. 
He's healing. He's providing food. He's, he's doing for them what they cannot do for themselves, right? Like when we say we feel compassion, we see someone who is destitute and down and out as we're walking to the Cardinal game and they're always there holding their signs and we're like, oh, I feel bad, here's a dollar. Most of the time we give them something because we feel guilty, right? I'm not saying it's wrong to do that, but a lot of our compassion, we say, is, is really just alleviating guilt. That's not compassion. Jesus didn't feel guilty about anything. There was no guilt to be had. He's moved with compassion for her, so deep within who he is, that he tells her, don't cry, and then he raises her son back to life. Now this story, more than any story that we've talked about, in my opinion, in estimation, is the clearest picture of the gospel. Because this woman did nothing for Jesus. This woman had nothing to offer Jesus. This woman wasn't even aware that he was there. This woman did not even know who he was, yet he raised her son back to life. And obviously the son could not ask him to do that. He was dead. The reality of what I say, this is a clear picture of the gospel, is this. What did we ever do to get God to respond to us? What did we do? Kenneth Copeland, if you know who he is, he preaches on faith quite a bit, and he wrote in a book, he wrote this. He said that one day the Lord asked him, said, Kenneth, why do I heal you? Kenneth's response was this. He said, because God, I have great faith. That's why you heal me. And he said the Lord spoke to him just peacefully, gently, yet very pointedly. Kenneth, I don't heal you because you have great faith. I heal you because I love you. I do what I do for you because I love you. You see, I think we want to take the credit for a lot of things, right? God did this for me because I was obedient. I believe in obedience, but you didn't obey your way into heaven, right? God didn't send Jesus because humanity was obedient. Obedience is a response to him. Uh, God did this for me because I sacrificed so much. No, your sacrifice was a response to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. God did this for me because I paid my tithe for 30 years. No. God didn't do any, anything for you because of what you did for him. Everything he's ever done for you or ever do for you is because of one reason, and that's Jesus. You see, the reality is this. Humanity, because of what Adam and Eve did in the garden because of sin, which created a great chasm between God and man, all of humanity was that young man on the coffin being carried to internal destination of separation from God. That's the reality. And when God looked at humanity... And what he did in Jesus, he did so because he was moved with compassion for humanity. There was never any time in the Bible where someone stood up and said, we need a Savior, send us Jesus. And God said, I will do that because of your faith. The Bible talks about faith, but here's the thing it makes about Jesus. It is, it is explicit that Jesus was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. What's that mean? He was the sacrifice for sin that was done and put in place before God even created anything. Jesus was first. And he'll always be first. So we can take no credit. God knew that once he created humanity, put Adam and Eve in the garden, that the result was eventually going to be them doing something that he told them not to do. So to remedy that, God did not respond to them. God did for them what they could never do for themselves even before he created them. That kind of boggles your mind a little bit. He set Jesus and his sacrifice before the world was even created. The Bible says, John three sixteen, for God what? So loved the world that he gave his only son. Why did he do it? Because he loves you. 
Why did he send Jesus? Because he's moved with compassion for humanity. We have nothing to offer. We have nothing to give. We don't make God any more God. He is God all by himself. And he will always be. I don't make God any more God. I don't add any value to him. He adds all value to me. He's not moved to do for me because of what I do for him. Everything that I do and that you do for God is a response to what he did in Jesus Christ. This woman, this boy, didn't know Jesus, had no recollection of who he was. And yet he did for them because he loved them, because he responded to the need that was in front of him. Jesus felt for her what only the Father could feel for her. And guess what? God's posture and attitude towards humanity is still the same today. I love you. I've sent my son Jesus. Now you say, well, doesn't the Bible say that we're saved by grace through faith? You're right, it does. Not denying that. But where did that faith come from? Did you reach down inside yourself and mold it and form it and shape it and set it into place and say, God, here's my faith, save me? No. The faith that God responds to is the faith that he gives you by the Holy Spirit. You can't even take credit for that. When you say, I have great faith, you're saying, God gave me great faith. That should be the response. It's not about us. But yet we're trying to take all the credit. And I love this story and this, what God put in place right here. This woman had nothing to offer. She didn't make Jesus any more Jesus. But he did it for her anyway. And he gave her her son back and he goes on his way. The story before it, he responds to great faith. Makes a great proclamation. I've, I've, I've never seen such great faith in all of Israel. This story, no such thing. What does that mean? It's just letting us know. It's not about your great faith. I want you to have great faith. I'll give you great faith. But it's about me. The Bible says that God is a jealous God. What's that mean? He's jealous that he wants, uh, he wants all the credit. And he gets all the glory. He does not on an ego trip, right? Not on an ego trip. He's just the greatest thing in the universe. The biggest, most expansive. Everything that we see has come from him. Everything. And the evil that we see, did that come from him? People manipulated good to get that. Everything that God creates is good. And he's brought us all here this morning. I think he just wants us to know, hey, I'm for you, not against you. You know, I... I look at this story and I I really connect with the mother here, the widow who lost her only son. She's walking at the funeral of her son and I think she's present but not really present. You know what I mean? She's just kind of numb. She's just there. She's overwhelmed by the emotion of the loss of her son, the loss of her life and what's she going to do? What's she going to go from here? I would venture to say that maybe some of us this morning are a little numb. We're here but we're not really here. There's something that's dead in our life. Maybe we're, we're, we're getting over a loss, we're currently experiencing a loss, or we're afraid of the loss that is to come, and we're just kind of numb to whatever's going on. My family, myself, I, I'm experiencing a little numbness myself. My grandfather is, is getting ready to transition into heaven. He's been telling all of us he, he's ready to go, and I'm happy that he's at peace, but I'm telling you, it, it, that, that's hard. You know what I mean? That doesn't, that doesn't make much sense at times. And you can get kind of numb to everything else going on around you. And you begin to ask the all-encompassing you know, cosmic question that only has three letters. Why? 
Why? Why now? Why me? Why here? You know, Pastor Ed, before he left, he, he gave me every sermon that he preached from like 1984 on. And included that were funerals, of which I quickly took because I didn't have much experience. And one of the things that he had written in one of the funeral sermons was this. It says, when God doesn't answer why, he always gives grace. And I thought that was so beautiful. Jesus doesn't come and talk to the woman and say, this is why your son died. This is why this happened. He doesn't come to answer why. He comes to give grace. And that's himself. And the Bible says that when he touched the young man, the word touch is literally the word that means to fasten oneself to, to grasp a hold of. How many of you would say that you need grace in Jesus to come into your life and into your current situation and grab a hold of you? And this is what God would tell you. He would say, don't cry. I believe that when Jesus looked at the woman and he said, don't cry, there was no, there was no angry bone in his body. There was nothing. And what he was really saying is, don't cry because I'm going to take care of it. You can stop crying now because you're not going to have to cry any longer. And he goes and raises her son and gives him, gives him back to her. How many of you have, have sat before a little, a little child, maybe your own son or grandchild or niece or nephew or, or whatever, and they're crying, and you know what they're crying about that you're getting ready to take care of. You know you're going to make it all better. Have you ever looked at that child in the face as you get down on one knee and you say, don't cry, it's going to be okay. I, I kind of think that's the posture that Jesus had with this woman, as if he was looking into a little child and saying, don't cry. I know you don't understand. I know you're hurting. I feel it too. I feel it. It's going to be okay. And he does it. I wish I could tell you why, but I can't. I'm trying to answer the own whys in my life, but here's the one thing that I feel like I've received. This message is kind of personal to me. Is I, I feel like Jesus has just come along the way with my grandfather making this transition and put his hand on my shoulder and said, don't cry, it's okay. And while I can't fix your situations and while I can't make it all better, I do know that God is no respecter of persons, meaning he doesn't like this section better than he likes this section even though there's more people over here. None of that. He loves us. And I think he longs just to respond to the need. And he sees the need. How many of you are in here this morning and you say, you know what, the last thing that I want to do is try to exercise some faith. I don't feel like I've got anything to give God. I don't feel like I've got anything left in the tank. I've got nothing to give him. I want to let you know it's okay. This woman had nothing left to give him and yet he did it anyway he did it anyway when we have nothing left to give I think sometimes that's the most precious gift that we can give our nothingness our brokenness and we say God we, we, we just we need you to come along the way you think Jesus really just happened along this situation you think he just aimlessly wandered into a funeral procession I think it was a divine appointment and he encountered a need and he met that need in a way that only he could I could bow your heads this morning I want to pray with you Pray for, for two things. Number one, if you're here this morning and you say, you know what, Josh, I've, I've never, I've not met Jesus. I've never asked him to be my savior and to be the Lord of my life. And you want the life transformation that comes with a relationship with Jesus where he'll come and forgive you for anything that you have ever done and anything that you will ever do. And he'll say, he's not going to radically change your situations, but he's going to radically change you, which a lot of times will change your situation. If you're here this morning and you say, you know what? I want to meet Jesus. I want to meet this Jesus. I want to encounter him. If that's you this morning, I'd love for you to shoot up your hand because I want to pray with you. 
Thank you. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, you know what, I, I, I feel like I've just drifted a little bit and I want to come back to him. If that's you this morning, shoot up your hand. I just want to pray with you this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'll pray with you. Secondly, if you're here this morning and you say, you know what, I feel a little numb. I kind of feel like that woman. There's some things that have died in my life that are getting ready to die and I'm just afraid and I'm just numb and I just, I just need an encounter with Jesus. If that's you this morning, can you just put up your hand? I want to pray for you too. Come on up. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, first and foremost, for those individuals that shot up their hand and said they want to have a, a relationship with you, to encounter you, Jesus, as Savior and as of Lord, I thank you that by shooting their hand up, they're expressing, God, that the faith and what's ever going on in their heart. And I pray right now, God, that the work that you began long ago would come to fruition in them. Their heart is changing. Their mind is changing. God, the old is gone and the new has come and you're making them a brand new creation as you welcome them into your family. Secondly, Father, for all the individuals that shot up their hand and those that didn't, they said they're just feeling a little numb. God, we just ask you right now. We need an encounter. We need you to stop by our village. We need you to be an uninvited guest into our situation and to come in and to make it all better, to heal us, to set us free, to alleviate the fear and the worry and the anxiety, the pain, the anguish, the sorrow. Whatever the case may be, Jesus, we just need you. And we just invite you right now. We, we make you an invited guest, not only into this church, but into our lives and our situations because we know that with you comes salvation and freedom and redemption and fulfillment. And we thank you for that. God, I thank you that your peace passes and transcends all understanding. And I ask you right now for that peace, God, to inhabit and guard the hearts and minds of every person that's in this room today. And that when we walk out of this room, we'll walk out of here different than when we came in because we encountered you, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. And everybody said, amen.